Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, the Why Isn't This ATM Working edition. This week's show is brought to you by Daylight Savings Time, which made my children even more enthusiastic to wake up at an ungodly hour than they were before. Somehow, somewhere along the line, they mangled the memo. The instruction was don't wake mummy and daddy up before 6.30am. But in their adult little minds, this has been transmuted into when it's 6.30am, come into our room and wake us up and bring a home alarm system and a marching band if you find one available. You know that feeling you get when you've been given an anesthetic but it hasn't quite kicked in yet? That was my day today. Anyhow, to work. On Thursday, a rumor started that Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest bank in the country, was in trouble. On Friday, there was a panic. And by Saturday, Silicon Valley Bank did not exist anymore. At least not in its previous form, It was shut down by regulators in California, and then it was taken over by the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, or FDIC. Today, Monday, Silicon Valley reopened, but as a, quote, newly created full-service FDI-operated bridge bank that was designed to protect all depositors of Silicon Valley Bank. This was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. And it obviously brought back memories of the crisis of 2008. So I thought that today, I would skip my monologue and instead talk to someone who knows all about this area. And that someone is John H. Cochran, who is an economist the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, a co-host of the show Goodfellows, on which he appears with Neil Ferguson and H.R. McMaster, the author of the Grumpy Economist blog, and most recently of the book The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level. John, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. All right. So before we get into a little more detail, can you tell me and tell anyone who, like me, is not an expert in this field, what is a bank run? If you've seen um, Jimmy Stewart's A Wonderful Life or Mary Poppins, you know what a bank run is. Uh, (laughs) Everybody comes to get their money out of the bank at the same time. The money, of course, is not stored in the bank in some great Scrooge McDuck vault of coins. The money has been lent out. Uh, and the bank uh, can't uh, give everybody their money back right away. And since uh, deposits promise immediate payment or else, uh, the bank goes under. That's the short form. Why doesn't that happen on a more regular basis? For lots of reasons. Um, First of all, with standard banks, most of the deposits are insured. 
So there's really no reason uh, for you. If the bank has enough assets to back your deposits, then um, there's no reason to run it. A pure bank run happens because I see you going and and you see I going and we just sort of jump even though there's no reason to go. Uh, But if the deposits are insured, then you know that even if you're at the back of the line, you'll eventually get your money back. So that helps. But also banks have many layers of protection against this thing. First of all, they keep some reserves around. So they have some cash to pay off people who are are normally going to come. They have ways of getting cash. A solvent bank can, um, for example, uh, issue some stock and get some more money that way, or it can borrow against its assets from another bank or borrow against its assets from the Federal Reserve. So there's normally all sorts of all sorts of fire breaks, all sorts of sprinklers, all sorts of ways to stop bank runs from happening. All right, and last background question on this before we get to the details. To what extent can a bank run become a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially in this age of instant wire transfers and Twitter and cable news? Could someone start a rumor and essentially engender a bank run from scratch? Yes, uh, it, it's possible. And there's, there's two kinds of bank runs. There's the self-fulfilling prophecy kind that we worry about, a perfectly normal bank. All of a sudden, there's a rumor and people run to get their cash out. And for some reason, the bank isn't able to convince the Fed or other banks or other sources of money to lend it the money to ride this out. You can, in principle, have a bank run. Uh, That was not the case for SBB or any of the other uh, financial crises we've seen. That's, That's pure liquidity versus solvency is the fancy word for it. When the bank simply, the assets aren't there, and then people are first in line to try to get whatever's left is uh, the kind of thing that we're seeing now. And that's different from just pure psychology. But there is a possibility. And I I think, uh, you know, um, uh, if we get a rumor, for example, of a big cyber attack, uh, that could send things going. And that's what we have deposit insurance and the Fed is lender of last resort and all these other mechanisms to try to stem that uh, kind of event from happening. All right. So why did this happen to Silicon Valley Bank and not say, to the 17th largest bank in the country or even to Bank of America? This was a a, a catastrophe of bank management and a catastrophe of regulation. Uh, The supposedly um, enormous uh, Fed Dodd-Frank regulatory apparatus failed to see an elephant in a room. The basic story of what happened, um, leaving aside all the fun details, this bank took a lot of money, deposits, from Silicon Valley companies. And those, these being companies, those deposits were much more than the $250,000 that is insured. So the depositors have, uh, I saw one company had $300 million sitting in a checking account at Silicon Valley Bank. If the bank went under, that company stood to lose everything but $250,000. So you have a category of depositors much more likely to jump than, for example, a standard bank whose depositors are like you and me. I don't have 250000 in a checking account. I know that my checking account at Chase would be completely insured. So no matter what happens, I'm always going to get my money back. So we start with a very unusual set of depositors who are not insured 
financially savvy and therefore um, much more likely to run than standard banks. They took all that money and stuffed it into um, what looked like safe assets, long-term government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. The problem with those is that when interest rates rise just a little bit, the value of those securities falls a lot, uh, as much as half from the interest rates we've seen. So that a bank that starts out with enough assets that if, if people come in and say, I want my money back, they can sell treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That's easy and give them their money back. But when those things fall to half of their value, then the bank is literally insolvent. It does not have enough saleable assets to make everybody good. So classic, we call this maturity mismatch, investing in very long-term securities, borrowing short-term, Lends, sends a bank to be very sensitive to interest rate rises. And when the interest rate goes up, the value of assets goes down, the value of the deposits it owes does not change, the bank is quickly insolvent. And since the depositors are not insured, they, uh, they run quickly and that's exactly what happened. This is first week banking 101 stuff. All right, so that's what the bank did wrong. You mentioned regulation, because I've seen people this week, of course, saying, this is because we don't regulate enough, this is the Republicans' fault, this is the result of the changes that were made to Dodd-Frank in 2018, but you're suggesting this was a regulatory failure. Absolutely. This is a regulatory failure of first order. Spotting, this is not 2008 and um, toxic derivatives and off-balance sheet entities and, and crazy, uh, crazy CDO squares and so forth. They took in deposits they invested them in long-term bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Very simple, uh, but the problem is the mismatch: uh, short-term deposits, long-term uh, liabilities, uh, long-term assets, and therefore, if interest rates go up, you're you're bust. You should be able to see this in five minutes of looking at this bank's books. You don't need the hundreds of thousands of pages of Dodd-Frank rules to to look at this bank and know. It's in imminent danger of a run. Um, now, it's interesting, you know, per, perhaps I'm trying to look into where is the regulatory failure. It is possible that our rules and regulations are so absurdly compl complicated that, in fact, um, they, they couldn't see this elephant in the room. But this is not hard, and, and any halfway sensible regulatory system, including the one that existed before Dodd-Frank, in, including the uh, the bank examiner that goes in to see Jimmy Stewart in Wonderful Life, uh, should have picked this up in about five minutes. All right, so that explains why what happened to Silicon Valley Bank happened to Silicon Valley Bank. The regulatory question perhaps doesn't have an obvious answer yet, but what went wrong is clear. It, it certainly was not the case that regulators were screaming, we see an enormous problem here, but we don't have the rules to do anything about it. Right, right. Uh, I don't, and, and we'll, we'll find out if there's ever an inquiry into the regulators, we'll find out how they possibly could have missed this. Uh, it's possible that the rules are so complicated, they said, well, they checked all the boxes, so we, you know, we didn't even notice it, even though it's just blindingly obvious if you look at the, uh, at the books of the bank. So how worried are you, even though many of the factors here seem to have been specific to Silicon Valley Bank and its business model and the nature of its depositors, how worried are you that this is going to spread out across the economy? Um, I still worry because the the unknown unknowns. Um, uh, I am told by people who look 
that most other banks right now don't have this constellation of problems. Uh, first, their, their funding, sort, their deposits are you and me, so much less likely to run. Second, they have implemented a first week of MBA banking course risk management and that they are not uh, sitting on long-term assets whose value can fall dramatically if interest rates rise uh, and therefore will be in trouble. But if the banking regulators did not see this one, uh, which was just enormous, uh, just, just strikingly obvious, I, I worry about what else uh, they haven't seen as well. The, 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 Dodd, the regulatory mechanism is remarkably opaque. And, and one of, I'll just give you one example of, of how I think things went wrong. Banks are, including Silicon Valley Bank, are allowed to take these long-term bonds, again, whose value fell by something like half when interest rates went up, and they're allowed to not declare the market value. They're allowed to say these are hold-to-maturity assets. So we treat them on the books as if they haven't declined in value at all, even when they have. Now, that's fine so long as you actually can hold them to maturity, but that means that they are, are useless if you actually have to sell them at a loss along the way. So how much of that kind of accounting is going on? I don't know. So I don't want to sow a panic here. All the numbers I've seen suggest that uh, most of the other banks have done basic risk management and are, are not exposing themselves to this obvious risk. And we kind of know interest rates are going to be going up for a while now. Okay, well, let's distinguish then between problems that might be applicable to all banks. For example, problem created by rising interest rates all banks aren't equally susceptible but that's a common problem or common input and separate that out from what the actual failure of this bank could do to other banks obviously the federal government stepped in here because it was worried that there would be a chain reaction do you do you share that worry and how do you think the federal government has done in its role since last Friday? The, the nature of the chain reaction, I think here, is not that um, Silicon Valley Bank, its failure, or the failure, really who's getting bailed out here is its depositors, not the bank, that that would have directly led to problems at other banks, but simply that um, the thing you mentioned earlier, the, the psychological or, or the real thing of, oh my gosh, other people are losing a lot of their money in these uh, bank in these uh, bank deposits that are more than the insured quantity. I better go grab mine out soon. So they wanted to stop uh, the run, and they did. They they put a bazooka on this thing, America's standard answer. We we drenched it with money. So uh, what they did today is to announce that uh, not only would all of Silicon Valley's depositors be made completely whole, even those who have deposits millions above the deposit insurance limit and were earning nice interest rates on this money all along, all of those were going to be made whole by the federal government as well as everybody else. So they simply guaranteed, essentially, as far as I can tell, all bank deposits anywhere. And that will certainly stop, that That should put a damper on a desire of people to run at the other banks who are made scared uh, by this bank. Now, um, uh, you know, in a crisis, it's often said, is a terrible time to worry about moral hazard. But the trouble is we didn't take the last 15 years to adequately worry about moral hazard. So here we are once again, an, a large ex-post bailout. Uh, people, who, lots of people earned a lot of money on the way up and they're getting bailed out uh, on the way down. 
Uh, we have now guaranteed an enormous swath of uh, bank deposits, uh, which is eventually coming out of your and my pocket one way or another. And um, are we ever going to not, not just be in a situation where uh, private people make money and anytime there's losses, it comes out of the taxpayer? So hopefully we'll uh, find some way to fix this. But I think the regulatory failure was so enormous, so so simple that the idea of just we'll bail everybody out and then we'll add some more rules so it never happens again, which is what they say over and over and over. I'm not sure that that holds water. That's what they said in 2008. Big bank bailout. Everybody, all the creditors got bailed out. But don't worry, we'll throw a bunch of rules on it and never, never happen again. Here we are. So I'm worried that in the future, banks will look at the federal response here and conclude that as a de facto matter, the federal government insures all deposits, irrespective of the limits that are set in law by FDIC insurance. Am I wrong? That's almost true. Uh, All deposits, so long as it's kind of big enough. If the local community bank of whatever goes down under good times, uh, they, they have let a couple of runs happen and, and small things fail. But I think you are right. Um, and we saw this already in, in the uh, pandemic era. The uh, Federal Reserve uh, did a, a, a very surprising number. Oh, lots of promises from 2008 were broken. They bailed out the money market funds uh, once again. There wasn't a bank problem, but um, they also said that uh, they were ready to buy corporate bond pri- corporate bonds at, at uh, high prices. So they basically said corporate bond prices may not fall. Uh, and so I think you are exactly right. Any large bank, all of the deposits are, are now effectively guaranteed by the government. That, that's uh, fair to say. Is there a benefit to keeping that as an informal rule? as opposed to codifying it in law in Congress? Or should we just admit what we're doing? Uh, perhaps there is some strategic ambiguity, <laughs> uh, if I can use a word from foreign policy. We, we, here's the problem. Why not just guarantee all deposits? Um, well, then people uh, putting their money in banks uh, pay, make no effort whatsoever to decide if the bank is good. They just chase the highest interest rate. And that's why, why do we have deposit insurance limits? Uh, we figured that, you know, mom and pop, you and me, uh, shouldn't necessarily be in the business of trying to make sure our bank is, is uh, healthy. But surely, fancy venture capital investors with tens of millions of dollars, they should be, you know, worried enough to only put their money in good banks. And not, we don't want banks to simply say, come here, I'll, I'll give you four, five, six percent. Don't worry about what I'm investing in, even though it's, you know, Uncle Louie's latest idea. Uh, you don't have to worry about this at all because the government guarantees the deposits. That obviously is a bad system. So we don't, uh, that, that's, where, that's the danger of, of where we are now with these uh, deposits effectively uh, all guaranteed. All right, let me give you my layman's at-the-bar description of how I see the last couple of years, and you can tell me where I'm wrong or where I'm overstating things or where I'm being too simplistic, which I'm sure I am. So here we go. Due to COVID-19 and the response, and then the Biden administration's ridiculously profligate agenda, the federal government spent an extraordinary amount of money, which caused the highest inflation in four decades, 
which inevitably was addressed by raising interest rates, which, because Silicon Valley Bank had improperly managed its risk, helped to cause a bank run, which has worried the Federal Reserve, so it now might limit its planned interest rate hikes, which in turn will allow inflation to remain less checked than it should be, and the entire sequence could have been avoided if the federal government had recognized during and after COVID that it was a terrible idea to flood the economy with that much cash. Um, with a couple of asterisks, I'm, I'm right with you. Um, the Trump administration was handing out cash pretty fast, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't want to make this part partisan, but overall, as I added up uh, over those uh, years, the government basically threw $5 trillion at, at people. Uh, some of this was important because uh, we didn't want the economy to crash and people who lost their jobs and were sick and so forth, we don't want them dying in sidewalk, but it was vastly overdone. So you're exactly right. Uh, that caused the inflation and now interest rates are going up. And now the Fed is facing a bunch of limits on its ability to raise interest rates. One of them is raising interest rates will raise the interest costs on the debt. So already that's going to cause more of the same fiscal fire, fiscal gas on the fire. Uh, but now also the Fed is worried that its uh, regulatory apparatus was asleep and that uh, raising interest rates will cause uh, the kind of financial trouble, which will, that's the surest way to make this into a, a recession. If I may add, um, you know, we kind of left the previous conversation without a way out. The central problem is is too little capital. Um the bank, when you look at a bank, Silicon Valley Bank, in, in a sense, is a puzzle. Its assets are long-term government bonds and mortgage-backed securities guaranteed by the government. Those are the safest possible assets in the world if they are held in your and my pension fund. You know, compare that to the profit stream of Tesla <laughs> uh, as a safe asset. Why in the world do we have uh, teams of regulators looking at assets like that? Answer because they're funded by deposits that can run at any moment. So the basic problem here is that uh, banks are just too levered. They're, they're making investments in very safe assets, but by uh, borrowing, um, borrowing via deposits, which lends them to be very fragile. And if they had simply issued much more, more equity, if, if you put your money into a bank by putting it via stock, we could end all of these financial crises forever. But nobody wants to do that. Why don't they want to do that? Uh, there's a lot of people who make a lot of money by uh, borrowing uh, at 1%, lending, lending at 2%, uh, enormously leveraged, and the government comes in to pick up the pieces every time it falls apart. What changes would we need to allow that? Is it illegal? Is it cultural? There's, there's a big subsidy involved in the current system. Uh, but yes, it's it's the system is sometimes called narrow banking or narrow deposit uh, taking, equity finance banking, um, legal, cultural, and mm, mostly regulatory, mostly uh, allowing it to happen. Uh, the Fed has been uh, actually really clamping down on people who want to offer narrow deposit banking. So if your deposits, if you put deposits in a bank and those deposits flow 100% into reserves at the Fed or short-term treasuries, that cannot blow up. There'll never be a run. It'll never be a failure. If that's how bank deposits work, we would never have runs again. Uh, but the Fed doesn't want to let that happen. I think we are at the moment that patching the current system has just revealed itself to be a hopeless project. If, if after the hundreds of thousands of pages of Dodd-Frank, this regulatory system cannot spot 
plain old borrow short, lend long, don't do any risk management, that project seems to me to be fundamentally hopeless, that 15 more regulations are not going to change that fact. All right, John Cochran, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm sorry, I didn't order a half. Sorry about that. He, uh, he follows me around. It's very unseemly. Well, my guest today is Henry Oliver, who is a writer from London, who writes online about politics and culture for outlets such as The New Statesman and The Critic, and most recently, National Review, more on which in a moment. Last year, Henry got a grant from Tyler Cowen's Emergent Ventures Fund to write a book about late bloomers, which should be out next year. He also has a substack called The Common Reader, where he writes about literature and biography. And I know Henry personally. We were at university together, where we argued about all manner of topics and agreed on some as well. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Charles, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have a section on this podcast, semi-frequently, Henry, where I invite people on to tell me why I'm wrong. Great. And I want you to tell me why I'm wrong, because you have twice in the last <laughs> week told me that I'm wrong. The first time was when I reacted in the same way as almost everyone else did to this tweet from Thomas Chatterton Williams that quoted a piece in The New Yorker, you can always tell from the font, uh, that claimed that people at Harvard who are studying English, could not read The Scarlet Letter. Not necessarily because of any objections to the book's plot or message, but literally could not read it because, well, this is the quote. The last time I taught The Scarlet Letter, I discovered that my students were really struggling to understand the sentences as sentences like having trouble identifying the subject and the verb. Their capacities are different, and the 19th century is a long time ago. Now, this, for obvious reasons, infuriated me, and I thought, my goodness, how terrible, what decline we're witnessing. And you said to me, you think it's a load of old nonsense? Why? Yeah, I don't believe a word of it. In order to for us to accept that claim, we would have to believe that the Harvard undergraduates, when they read a sentence in the Scarlet Letter, do not know what the people in that sentence are doing. And I think if you put any sentence from that novel up on the wall and said, okay, kids, what are these people doing? I mean, it just sounds absurd that the nation's next generation of lawyers and management consultants wouldn't be able to answer that question. You know, it, it strikes me that it is either exaggerated or, you know, just sort of fabricated in a way because of a broader hysteria about a perceived loss of status in the humanities. All right. So explain the motive here, because I can absolutely see why someone who laments the decline of the arts might make this claim. Yeah. I can imagine Harold Bloom making yes. this claim. But this isn't somebody who 
is lamenting the decline of the arts. And it's not Harold Bloom. It's Amanda Claybor, Harvard's Dean of Undergraduate Education and an English professor. So why would she say this? In the New Yorker article, a lot is made about the fact that the enrollment in English literature has declined by 75% in recent years at Harvard. And this is a common pattern among some elite universities. And I think her claim makes sense to me as part of a broader pattern of declining interest over, say, the last decade in majoring in English literature. It just doesn't make sense as a literal claim. And what's interesting is that Harold Bloom did, in fact, make this same claim. He used to say, he said, um, he said, I can't read the New York Times anymore. They don't write it in English, which was quite funny, but obviously rubbish. And he, he very well could read the New York Times. And it's something that every generation of literature scholars eventually comes round to the view that uh, no one knows how to read or write in English anymore. But it, it's never true. And I think what's happened at Harvard is that fewer and fewer people recently have wanted to take a full English degree. Maybe, maybe they are less interested in reading the Scarlet Letter, but it gets put out of all proportion. And I think that's a shame because it masks the fact that broader interest in the humanities is actually quite high and, and the humanities are doing very well outside of the universities. All right. Well, you say it's never true. Are you saying there has been no decline whatsoever in the literary abilities of Harvard students, Oxford students, what you will, in a hundred years? I have not spent any time with undergraduates since I left university, I'm very pleased to say. So I can't give you a report of it. I do think that a lot gets made about the formal side of, of grammar and can they pick out verbs and you know, uh, do a graph of a sentence and all that sort of thing. But actually, being able to use language effectively doesn't necessarily rely on a good knowledge of those principles. You could look back 100 years and say, well, they all knew Latin. They'd all read much more than we had. They were all much better versed in literature and translation. I think that's probably true. I think the amount that we read now is probably less than it was because we have TV and radio and the internet and God knows what else. But I don't think that necessarily equates to a decline in our ability to engage with this literature or to use language. And I think, if anything, there's too much good writing today. What does that mean? No one reads every really good article that comes out every week in all the major outlets and the blogs and whatever else. There is a lot of prose on the internet that's of a very high quality. And I don't see that that's been in decline in the last 10 years. What do you think of the idea that the students in question, and maybe the newest generation, is uniquely unwilling to read and engage with older texts, which is a different question than Abel. Yes. I think there's, there's probably some truth to that, and it seems much more likely to me that the Scarlet Letter is currently out of fashion because it is essentially a novel about cancel culture. And it might not be a very easy novel to discuss if you are a proponent of such cultures. I don't know if that's what's going on, it's a speculation, but it seems likely to me that that's the case. But one of the things that is true about literature, whether we want it to be true or not, is that every generation rethinks the canon for itself. So if you look at Shakespeare, 
it used to be the case that Antony and Cleopatra was thought of as, you know, one of the great plays, which it is. But I think it then went through a period of not being very popular because it is essentially a colonial play. And so different generations will favor different texts depending on what they respond to politically, if you like. That's not always a bad thing. It's just how it works. No, but it is a bad thing when those generations are offended by texts to the point at which they don't want to engage in them, is it not? I don't know. I quite like the idea that someone would be so offended by a text that they don't want to engage with it. Why? Well, this links to our uh, (laughs) discussion about Roald Dahl, because Shakespeare was edited very, very extensively and very badly for nearly two centuries, and um, butchered and bastardized versions of his plays were put on. And one of those was King Lear, and people found it unbearable to to watch the end of King Lear when Cordelia dies. Spoiler alert for those youngsters who haven't <laughs> read their Shakespeare. Um, but I I feel the same way. When I the last time I read that play was a long time ago because the the death of Cordelia is just uh, it's so crushing. It's so dark. And what better way for a writer to prick your conscience, really, really get inside your head and really challenge you than to produce something that you almost can't bear to read. That is one of the reasons why King Lear is right at the heart of the Western canon and and will never be displaced, along with Hamlet, which can be equally difficult in places. I take your point that it is in some sense a compliment to a writer if the work is so profoundly moving that you find it difficult to experience or at least experience more than once. But I am more offended by the prospect of a King Lear with a happy ending (laughs) than I am am the alternative. I I share your feelings and I am reminded of the way that Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw, which is a very great play, was turned into My Fair Lady. Not many people read Pygmalion anymore, but it, it has an unhappy ending, I'm glad to say. And obviously, My Fair Lady, they all, I don't know, they all go skipping into the sunset and smell roses at the end or something. But when they did this, Shaw said to the people who'd done it, he said, your ending is damnable and you ought to be shot. And I think that's, you know, that's good. That's a good attitude. But the problem is Shaw lost, right? Everyone has seen My Fair Lady. And very few people have seen Pygmalion. And I think we have to accept that in a free speech society, which I know you're very keen on, uh, as am I, we have to accept that people will make their own stories and their own versions of stories, and that people will be sentimental. What we need to do is to put, as Harold Bloom would say, put a hedge around the canon. Make sure that if people are so offended or so unable or unwilling to engage with what is really difficult and dark in certain texts, that they can have their additional version, a new version, whatever, but they cannot get rid of or block out the original version. All right, well, this brings us perfectly to my second invitation to you to tell me why I'm wrong, or at least why I'm missing the point. I wrote a couple of weeks ago about the outrageous news that Roald Dahl's books had been edited, and were being made to conform to, I won't say modern sensibilities, I'll say the sensibilities of marginal figures who apparently don't even like literature. 
And I think you broadly agreed with what I wrote and what I went through with Kat Rosenfield on this podcast two weeks ago. But then I wrote a follow-up and I said, you know, what worries me is that they'll come for Shakespeare. Now, I do know that in the past people have come for Shakespeare. In fact, that's where Baldler comes from, from Baldler eyes, as you mentioned. But what worried me in particular was that we would get a form of cultural consensus that applied the same changes to Shakespeare that had been applied to Dahl. And my question was, if, for example, it is fine for the sensitivity readers to cut out the word fat from all of Roald Dahl's works and to cut out the fat jokes that accompany it, why not get rid of large portions of Henry IV? And if we can't use light and dark and white and black to describe emotions, well, you're not going to like the end of Othello. And if we don't like seeing people treated badly, then we're not going to enjoy The Merchant of Venice. And I worried that we would get this cultural consensus that would creep in in the theatre and that would creep in in academia that didn't teach Shakespeare or that required an alternate set of Shakespeare's texts that became, in effect, the norm. And you said, well, no, you're wrong, because (laughs) this has already happened, but... Also, Charles, you're missing the point about why the Roald Dahl example was so pernicious. Yes. So I agree with you that what they did to Roald Dahl was not only outrageous, but um, ham-fisted and of very poor quality. And if you're, <laughs> if you're going to mess around with someone else's book, you should at least produce something like My Fair Lady, which is good in its own right. Um, they've, they've imposed edits that are also just very bad edits. Um, my, I don't actually object, though, to them editing the works, because as I say, once something's out of copyright, it will always be edited. We have Jane Austen with zombies, Jane Austen with steamy sex scenes, uh, Jane Austen with God knows what, sea monsters. I mean, you anything you can think of, they've done it with Pride and Prejudice, right? There are shelves and shelves of this stuff. This is of no consequence to Jane Austen. She rides on into the 21st century in a stronger position than she's ever been in the original work. And there is, I think, a great difference between, as I say, making your own version of a story and telling me that I am no longer allowed access to the original. So we saw the news a couple of days after we had our discussion about it, where if you owned the Roald Dahl books on a Kindle, it was automatically updated to be the edited text. I mean, I think that's indefensible and a completely outrageous whatever contract it is you have when you buy a Kindle book. It's completely outrageous that that seems to be acceptable behavior. But that is only happening because the people doing these edits have copyright over Dahl's work. If they did not have copyright, what they would have to do is create Sense and Sensibility and Zombies, or whatever the equivalent is, you know, Charlie and the Factory of Postcolonial Acceptability or whatever they wouldn't be able to mess around with the original. And I think the reason why it's been so egregious is because they changed the original and told us we couldn't have it anymore. And that is clearly a different thing to creating a, a, you know, a variation. All right, well, let me ask you this. Accepting that in 
both the case of Roald Dahl and the case of William Shakespeare, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. And indeed, that there's nothing I should be able to do about it because Shakespeare's out of copyright and Roald Dahl's works are not owned by me and I believe in private property. Yeah. Should I nevertheless resist the idea that adapting Jane Austen into Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and scouring texts to take out words by which a handful of people are offended are different. The free marketeer in me, of course, accepts that I cannot determine what is popular on television or on the radio or in print. But I can have opinions. And as a private citizen... I am much more alarmed by the cultural tendency that is represented by what is being done to Dahl than I am by someone saying, let's set the Tempest in space. Or we only have 45 minutes in our television slot. Let's cut out large swathes of the play. Or wouldn't it be funny if Julius Caesar were a squid. I mean, there is, a, there is a, a difference there, is there not? In that in one case, you are indulging and celebrating creativity. And in the other case, you are being culturally censorious for political reasons. One of the nice things about believing in free speech and the free market is that you very often don't need to worry about um, that question. You can just leave everyone to do what they want. And the system will eventually shake out something that works pretty well, as it has done for a long time now. I think the only reason why the edits that were made were made is because of copyright. Imagine a situation where there was no copyright, and these new editions had been put out alongside the originals. I simply can't see that there would be a very big market for them. Certainly not a market that would be anything like the, the size of the current market for, for the Roald Dahl editions that are in copyright. Okay, so in, so in other words, the reason that it doesn't bother you is that you don't think it is a cultural phenomenon, and the only reason that this had any purchase was because the sensitivity readers were able to co-opt the publisher. Yes, it's, it's a side effect of protectionism. If we move the protectionism, the market for this nonsense will shrink. I, I, I don't think it's possible to outcompete Shakespeare or Jane Austen or Roald Dahl by fiddling around with their books. You have to do what Shakespeare did, which is take someone's book and rethink it. If you really wanted to make the edits they'd made, Augustus Gloop wouldn't suffer the way he suffers at the end of that book. And that's true for so many of the characters in Dahl. The problem you face is that the plot is <laughs> sadistically cruel in many cases. And you can put a lot of nice words in, but it won't be lost on any of the children that these characters end up in a very bad situation. What you'd need to do is rewrite and rethink the whole thing. If you did that, you might produce a new version that did very well. But if you just put out the thing we've got now, in fair and open competition with the originals, children love all those words. They love the ghastliness of things. That's the genius of Roald Dahl. He, he knew that children... Because they're innocent, they can laugh at cruelty. Whereas because we're all jaded and grumpy adults, when we see cruelty, we slightly wince and think about all the times it's happened to us or we've been cruel or whatever. So that's why they would never win in the free market. The problem is it's not a free market. They've got a protectionist barrier that lets them 
update people's Kindles without asking them. Let's put a number on it then. You're a writer. You presumably want some copyright. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to sell your work. Certainly, there should be copyright while ever a writer is alive. Otherwise, you end up with a sort of forgery and a rip-off problem, which is what happened to Charles Dickens in America. It's then, I think, uh, the sort of debate where good people can disagree about whether it should be for, you know, five years, ten years, whatever, after the author dies. The problem we have is that it's currently 75 years. And so someone's grandchildren, or even, I mean, these days, you know, more than grandchildren, ends up controlling the copyright, which is, I would say, there is no, no moral justification for that at all. And they're sufficiently detached, I would suggest, from the original writer and from the, from the conditions in which the book was made, because they weren't born, that they're happy to make these sorts of edits. Do you think this problem is going to get better or worse? Worse. If you look at the history of biography, there is a long history of biography not being written properly because the relatives are ashamed of, of what their forebears did. So someone like James Boswell, who's the great biographer in English, for a long, long time, we did not have Boswell's letters and papers. We didn't have his famous journals because his descendants who were all prudish Victorians, were horrified at the way he'd gone round London, you know, uh, whoring and drinking and, and just, just utterly disgraceful behaviour. And so all this stuff was locked up and kept secret and they refused to give it to anyone. And of course, they had that right. They had the ability to, to withhold that. And that is a very, very frequent problem in biography. And it, that is why I think copyright is the problem here, is that once you give someone that control, one or two generations passes, you know, standards change, morals change, just what would embarrass you about your relatives changes. And suddenly, the iron grip gets a little tighter on something none of us was worried about 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't uh, need to speculate on what I would be embarrassed about that my family did before I was born. I can just think back to when I was 17. Or in fact, Henry, sometimes when I was 20, and we were at university together, <laughs> I think that's true, but what I mean, Charles, is I know, that I know. your grandchildren might look back at something you're saying now that sounds, you know, for all we know, in 50 years, the idea of being a sort of John Stuart Mill liberal will come to be seen as, as you know, utterly horrifying and not something they want anyone to know about. No, that's true. I can't, that's true. I can't imagine that's quite true, but it's that kind of thing. Also, I don't know what skeletons you've got lurking in your closet. I'm certainly not asking you, but that may be a problem for many of the writers up for censorship. Yeah, well, I'll tell you when we've stopped recording. <laughs> All right, Henry, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. It's been a really pleasure. Thank you, Charles. And that's all we've got time for. I've, I've told you to get a restraining order. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests, John Cochran and Henry Oliver. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Woodrow Wilson for making it dark in the mornings. And thank you to my children for exploiting that darkness to the maximum. This has been episode 21 of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. I'll see you next week. <laughs>